Hey there, everybody. This is Brian Doak. I'm joined uh, in my office. This is a different kind of panel. We are not in the classroom. Um, we're in my office, and I have two guests in here. Um, the part of the creed that we are on for this week is descended to the dead. Um, and we essentially ended this past Monday's lecture, as you'll recall, um, the Old Testament story in a certain sense as we tracked it from like a kind of Genesis through Second Kings sort of way. Uh, there's more that happens um, outside of Genesis through Kings in terms of the Bible story, and hopefully we can touch on a little bit of that uh, today as well. Um, but the creed which we recite every time is, I believe in God, Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. And that is where, that's where we kind of ended um, um, the basic storyline of the Old Testament. Um, the guests I have here I want to introduce to you. I'm so excited. Um, first, sitting right across from me at this little table, Dr. Melissa Ramos. Um, Dr. Ramos has her undergrad from UC Irvine. Is that right? That's right. In psychology? That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And did your master's at Cambridge and her PhD at UCLA, essentially studying um, ancient Near Eastern languages and civilizations and the Hebrew Bible. Dr. Ramos, welcome. Thank you, and thanks for hosting us in this interesting conversation. <laughs> we'll see how interesting it gets. Um, and then also sitting across from me, Dr. Lisa Cleeth. Um, Dr. Cleeth did her undergrad at Wheaton College um, and her, her MA at Fuller Seminary, is that correct? And then also her PhD at UCLA, also in ancient Near Eastern languages and cultures, and is a specialist in the Hebrew Bible. Dr. Cleeth, welcome. Thank you. Glad to represent the UCLA Bruins. With Dr. Ramos? Yeah, no kidding. This is like a Bruin fest here. The two, the two people from UCLA, um, West Coast Power. Here we are. Um, so happy, Dr. Cleeth. Could I, could I just turn it back over to you? How did you get into studying the Old Testament? Like, is there something alluring about Israel's story or the material or the language? Like, for how you got into this? Yeah, I actually love how messy it is when we think about all the different genres, the crazy stories that happen there. I just find it really fascinating, and I love the stuff that's controversial and <laughs> offensive about it even. Well, so, What do you think is controversial or offensive in the Old Testament? Oh man, so many things. Things like Ezra and Nehemiah breaking up mixed marriages and... Um, I don't know, all this stuff in Judges where people do oh, violence. Yeah. Oh, yeah, totally. Seemingly <laughs> at God's hand, potentially. <laughs> yes, very yeah. very controversial. Dr. Ramos, what about you? How did you get, on, get into all this? Well, I think I would say that I love the Old Testament because I love narratives in general. Um, I, I'm also a pastor in the Presbyterian Church, and I did find that when I was preaching, I was more of a narrative type of a preacher. I love telling the stories, love getting into the stories, mm -hmm. and I love that the stories in the Old Testament are a collection of total goof-ups. I mean, people who just get it wrong left and right and left and right, but God doesn't give up on them. Mm -hmm. And I think that that, for me, is, is part of the Old Testament story that mm -hmm. I just get so drawn into. Mm -hmm. And I just love Hebrew language. It's just fascinating to me. Um, and so I just love being able to, to read um, to read the Old Testament in Hebrew. Yeah, I wonder on that on that issue of the Bible being a narrative, just kind of like an uber overall Bible kind of question. I bet people who maybe don't know very much about the Bible or who are not Christians or who aren't used to it might think, oh, the Bible, it's probably like a collection of like do's and don'ts and laws. But it is a lot of it, a huge percentage of it, at least the Old Testament, I mean, it's true for the New Testament as well, is, is a story. Are like people narrating a story and so little of it is actually saying, do's and, and don'ts. I don't know. So it's kind of fascinating to hear you say 
narrative and so on that that's something and it does it does actually bring up the issue that it could get weird like you read judges and it's like what's the message of the book of judges <laughs> exactly like if, if the narrator's not telling you what you're supposed to get out of it how do you know I mean, I know that's a hard question, but can I flip that back to you? Like when you're reading a narrative in the Bible and it doesn't explicitly say what you're supposed to get out of it, what are you, how are you supposed to go about, like what even kind of like strategy might one use to get something out of it? Um, something I've been thinking about with my biblical interpretation class is the principle of reading the different books of the Bible in conversation with each other. So mm-hmm. Judges is not there on its own. It's there in the context of um, the rest of the history of Israel, what happens in the kingdom after that. Mm-hmm. And like the narrator does tell you in Judges, mm-hmm. and this was the time when there was no king in Israel, right? Mm-hmm. So it's relating to the fact that there is going to be one. Um, so we can piece together what we know about Judah and other characters and other things that the people of God do and God does with them through that history to help interpret individual things. Hmm, I'm actually teaching a class right now at George Fox on the book of Judges. So I have a lot of thoughts in my mind about this particular (laughs) book and about some of the offensive or difficult material that we read in there. Um, Things that we read and we're sort of horrified by. But as Dr. Cleeth just mentioned, there is a refrain, repeated theme throughout the book of of Judges, which is uh, about the, the lack of a king, the need for a king, and sort of the disorder and the chaos and the anarchy, you might even call it barbarism that's happening without strong leadership that takes place. Um, And yet I find it also fascinating that the Old Testament holds multiple opinions in tension or dialectic. So for example, the book of Judges is something of a pro-monarchical type of a book, a book that leads the reader through kind of reading difficult material into a a conclusion that, um, that, that we desperately need a king or some type of strong leadership. And then when you get to the book of Samuel, which is right after the book of Judges, there are passages that are deeply suspicious of kingship and are worried about uh, about having a king and what that mean and might mean in terms of having to pay taxes or your, your sons are conscripted into the military or your daughters are conscripted into working as cooks and bakers in the royal palace. All these. So I love that the Bible holds more than one opinion on things in tension that seems to be purposeful, deliberate. Yeah, I mean, I suggested in the lecture this from this past Monday um, that, in fact, that issue of tension is, is a tough one. And it's a fascinating when you think of this question of, so the way that the Old Testament narrative sort of ends, in a sense, like the way that story of kingship ends, I should say. Um, it's I mean, that's an epic story, right? Like you have creation, then you have them getting in the land, then you have the kingship, but then they weren't supposed to have a king, but then they do, and then God doesn't like most of the kings. And then there's this destruction of Israel and Judah, or just the whole nation. I mean, that's an epic story. And I was trying to ruminate on this question of, is that story ultimately a story of failure? Or is it actually a success? Or some strange mix? Is it as simple as, I mean, I tried to suggest, I said, I don't think you can read that story and just be like, well, God gave them land, but they screwed it up, so they had to leave. Like, I suggested that I thought that story was too simplistic, because there were all these other strains that maybe suggested... I don't know, that maybe Israel didn't deserve it. Like Lamentations, there's a, there's a verse in Lamentations. I don't have the exact quote, but it's something like, you know, we've suffered over and beyond what we should have. Or Isaiah chapter 40, we've suffered, the people have suffered and paid in exile double for their sins. It's like, why should anyone pay double? Like, why should it go above and beyond? Um, could people really be expected to keep this kind of covenant that God had that they're supposed to just be like this totally holy nation? I mean, do you see the story of Israel in terms of its kingship as ultimately a story of failure or is it a success story or is it not to be looked at in terms of, cause the Bible has a pretty, I mean, 
one strand, like Deuteronomy through Joshua, through Judges, through Samuel and Kings, has a pretty strong take on this story, that it is a failure, like Israel fails. And the reason they fail is because they, or the reason they have to leave the land is because ultimately they sinned. I mean, do you see the narrative being that strongly, you know, pushy on that tone, or is there some other note being struck there? I mean, I would agree with you that um, the kingship doesn't last and it's taken in terms of retribution theology as um, the humans need to be punished for not holding up their end of the covenant. Um, but maybe it's a story of success of covenant. Um, when they fail, that covenant relationship still exists, like the permanence of it is mm. successful. So um, no matter what happens in terms of what they experience at God's hand or whether or not they're successful in holding up the law, um, the permanence of that covenant relationship is the strain throughout that continues. So you're saying they might lose the kingship, they might even lose the temple, but that doesn't mean they've lost everything. Right, and that's what the post-exilic literature in the Hebrew Bible is dealing with. Mm -hmm. They're looking for God's presence where they are now, and they're ultimately concluding like he's still present to us. Right, right. I think maybe there is a sense in which we can understand that the the early portions of of the Bible, before you get to the post-exilic period, as ultimately... God's judgment on the institution of kingship. I don't know that it's really fair to say that it's a judgment on the covenant per se, because as Dr. Cleach just pointed out, the covenant continues and the people of God continue. But certainly it is in the post-exilic period and beyond per se, it, it is a time of a, a reevaluation of the, the institutions that comprised people's religious, um, ethnic, and, uh, and cultural identity as the people of God. So when we're looking um, at post-exilic literature that, that is sort of in and around Jerusalem, as Ezra and Nehemiah, some of those texts, and also texts that are written in the, in the diaspora period. I'm thinking of Esther or Daniel, right? There are different questions about what does it mean to serve God as someone in the diaspora exiled community of Judeans who are no longer in Jerusalem and don't have a religious identity centered in and around the temple, mm -hmm. don't have a religious identity in and around cent that's centered on kingship per se. So what does it mean then right. for God to be with them? What does it mean for them to be faithful, fo faithful followers of God? Right. I, you know, I started the lecture last week by reading, I, I kind of did like a flash forward, like here's how the book of Second Kings ends. And I read the section about the burning of the temple and the Babylonian siege but I actually didn't read the real end of the book itself I mean I suggested that they set up a governor and then that was kind of the end but there's this last little paragraph I just want to read in 2nd Kings 25 by way of bridging to another topic here what happens essentially after the book of 2nd Kings but um, you know these last two verses say in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiakim king of Judah there's also a Jehoiakim with an M but this is Jehoiakim in the year uh, Awel Marduk became king of Babylon he released Jehoiakim king of Judah from prison. So, quick flashback. Like, this Jehoiakim guy had been exiled, I think, in, like, 597 B.C., at the same time that Ezekiel had to leave and all this kind of stuff happened. And then there were, like, more sort of, like, Davidic or pseudo-Davidic kings that sort of ruled, like, just a couple of them afterward. But this king was still, I guess he's kind of like a, I don't know, this is almost like a little a root or a seed for, like, the Hebrew Bible, the sequel, or something like that. Like, he's there, right? He's in exile. But, so what's going to happen to him? Um, he spoke, this is the king of Babylon, spoke to Jehoiakim, this king, kindly to him and gave him a seat of honor higher than those of the other kings who were with him in Babylon. So apparently there are other exiled kings as well. So Jehoiakim put aside his prison clothes and for the rest of his life ate regularly at the king's table. Day by day, the king gave Jehoiakim a regular allowance as long as he lived. 
And that is the actual end to Second Kings, not the actual burning of the temple. So, I don't know, by way of, of bridging this over to what happens after Second Kings, are we supposed to think that this is a hopeful ending to the book? Like, we're supposed to be like, oh, there's like a little seed here of something that's going to happen later. It's kind of like showing that the book of, of Kings and all this stuff is maybe just like a prequel to some other kind of thing that's now going to happen. Is that how we should read that? And then, in general, piling on to that question, which is already compli- complex enough, what happens after the end of Second Kings, just in terms of like the Old Testament and its story? So that seed actually reappears a couple times. It's not ultimately fulfilled in the sense that there's like no Davidic kingship established again in the land. But um, you have this guy, Zerubbabel, who pops up in Ezra as somebody who's helping to rebuild the temple. And he's also mentioned in Haggai as like this signet ring that God is like promising to fulfill something through. Um, And the weird thing with Zerubbabel is he just disappears, even in the narrative of Ezra. Like he's kind of there helping to rebuild and then like he's no longer around. So I guess they don't establish. And doesn't doesn't Haggai suggest he's like some big deal like acting like this is my branch that I'm going to grow everything out of and then it's like and there's no conclusion to that story in a sense so you're saying there's some kind of sense like in Jehoiakim even that yeah this idea that there would be some Davidic type person is is something that that remained important yeah, they're still looking for that promise to David that was made in 2 Samuel 7. Like, somebody from this line is going to rule eternally out of Jerusalem. Right. Like, you know, and that's the, the representation of covenant. So there's still, like, a little bit of hope in that, mm-hmm. even though it doesn't get fulfilled. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately, what happens is they essentially, so all the people that were in the southern kingdom, they get dispersed, right? Mm-hmm. You have those stories of Daniel and Esther, mm-hmm. um, and you essentially have the Jewish people now in diaspora. So you have quite a diversity of reactions to that, which you see reflected in the literature of the the end of the Hebrew Bible, the Second Temple period. Um, So some people go back and rebuild the temple in the story of Ezra and Nehemiah. Some people remain in diaspora. um, But they're all kind of separately dealing with that question of who are we as the people of God now, dealing dealing with the crises we're talking about of the loss of the kingship and and the temple. What about you, Dr. Ramos? Do you think that ending in Second Kings is supposed to be positive? Like we're supposed to feel good about that? It's almost like you come to the end of a TV show and and you want another series of it, but what you get are a bunch of spin-offs that go in different directions, right? So um, you have a spin-off that ha- what happens to the people that remain in diaspora? We have some texts that, that come from that group. What happens to those who decide to, to come back to the land? Well, we have some texts from that group. And so I think it's more a, 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 in the sense of, of being a series of spin-offs. And, and also... I mean, you simply don't have a single people group in a single location giving a single answer to any of these questions. But I think, um, I know we're all sort of Hebrew Bible scholars, but at the same time, I think it's useful to ask the question of, of how this connects to the New Testament as well. Yeah, and I think this totally. is something that our students want to know the answer to. And if we're getting to this question of, of, of 2 Samuel 7, the promise to David of eternal kingship, the temple's destroyed, there's no longer a king. I mean, we can maybe count the period of the Hasmonean kings as this glorious hundred years of the restoration of the monarchy, but that doesn't remain forever. Yeah, and we didn't, we didn't talk about that in the class yet, or at all. So, like, that's a period in the second century, um, into the, yeah, I think the second century, right? The 100s, mm-hmm. like, where essentially they try a little bit of a revival of this kingship idea, and they get it going a little bit, but it doesn't really work that well, I don't think. It doesn't last. Yeah. It lasts about 100 years. And it also, there are also claims in various texts um, of, of corruption and right. uh, a sort of un- civil unrest right. with the leadership that's in place. Right. But I want to kind of maybe just zoom forward to the 
first chapter of the New Testament, mm -hmm. the Gospel of Matthew, chapter one, and it opens up with a genealogy. Most people think a genealogy, which is just a, a giant list of names and descendants. Most people just kind of want to yawn at that and it's mm -hmm. really boring. But it's interesting to me that this opening genealogy of Matthew, it centers with a hinge point. The structure of it centers on the question of the Babylonian exile and the destruction. And also that the lineage of Jesus is traced back to King David, mm -hmm. right? And that's kind of how it, that's sort of the, the center point of the genealogy itself. So it seems that the Bible, um, it, well, at least the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, um, wants to present itself as this bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament um, mm -hmm. that certainly um, centers on the figure of Jesus. But Jesus is, is perhaps prefigured as some type of a response even to Second Samuel seven and the promise to David. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, I wonder. Yeah, that's that. That makes a lot of sense. I like that bridge to the New Testament um, idea because that's that is where we're going with this <laughs> eventually. And there's all this stuff that happens in like the the five hundreds and the four hundreds and the three hundreds and the two hundreds and the one hundreds BC that is like you know this so-called period between the testaments. But actually, it's not really between the testaments. I mean, the Old Testament has books from this period. Um, maybe most substantially Ezra and Nehemiah from, I don't know, Dr. Gleith, you're an expert in these books. I mean, you teach them and, and, and you've written a lot about them. The books, books of Ezra and Nehemiah, I mean, could you, summar, could you summarize in a really brief way? Like, what is like the plot of these books? When do you think they were written? And like, how do they continue Israel's story um, after Second Kings, essentially? Sure. These books, um, they take place during the Persian period, probably during the fifth century, we'll say approximately. It's really hard to date some of it. Um, but in two words, I could summarize what happens there, repatriation and reconstruction. So we have a group of some of those exiles that had been removed from Judah that then return. They repatriate um, to Jerusalem and the region around it, and they rebuild the temple and the city what walls. Do you, what do you mean by repatriate? What does that mean? Yeah, that's going back to one's home, essentially, right? So um, going back to the place that they perceive of as their origin. What about like when, when like when were these books written and like who wrote them? Do you, do you think like did Ezra and Nehemiah write Ezra and Nehemiah or somebody else or how does that work? I find that unlikely. It's really hard to know. You know, we don't have any really ancient manuscripts of these. I think they were probably written in the Hellenistic period following that. Um, but they're looking forward towards kind of continuing to define who this people is. They're redefining themselves in these books as mm -hmm. the people who belong in Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. And in Nehemiah, they rebuild the wall, basically, of the city that had been burned down. And Ezra has a narration of the rebuilding of the temple. Do you think that that second temple that they rebuilt, maybe around the year 515, I don't know if that's a good date for that. Was it like a really spectacular temple like the first one at that time? Was it just like a little site where some people were doing some sacrifices? Like, what do, what do scholars suppose that that early second temple looked like or was like? Do we know? Um, Ezra 3 reflects on the response of the people that were there when they rebuilt it, and they have a dual response. There's a response from the older generation that had previously seen Solomon's temple, mm -hmm. and they actually weep when they see the new temple because it's not nearly as great. <laughs> the new generation, they're like crying out with joy because they're like, we've got a temple again. We always heard that we were supposed to have a temple. So um, according to that reaction, it's um, there, <laughs> but it's not as great as it previously was. So maybe there's some sense of disappointment or that, or, or maybe just like emotion that it's like, wow, this thing that had been burned down, we're now starting to rebuild it. I can't handle it. You know, that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, okay. So we got some sketch here at least of like, yeah, that there is, there is a story in the Old Testament after Second Kings. Like we kind of ended there in terms of like the class and what we did. And we didn't have a lot of time to go into these other books. But in fact, 
there's all this literature from this period, not to mention prophets like Haggai um, and, and Zechariah. And, you know, Daniel obviously treats this period in some way um, much later as well. We didn't talk about Daniel. Somebody was lamenting that. We were talking at the class earlier and they were saying, why didn't we talk about Daniel? It's like, ah, Daniel is such a ball of wax, you know, it's just such a huge, um, you know, set of materials, but, but good materials. And you should definitely read Daniel, okay? Um, I, I wonder, Dr. Ramos, if I could flip it back to you. Many students, I think, whether they've expressed it really clearly or not, have, have struggled with this idea that in the Old Testament, I mean, to put it like bluntly, the way that I think a lot of people experience it, God is like angry, like this vicious, mean punisher, a distant father figure. And then maybe like we could speed ahead to get to the New Testament. Maybe God has a son. Maybe he mellows out when he has a kid, you know, and then it's like God's like, oh, I can't be acting like this now that I got a son. And then everything's like much, much nicer or something like that. And we've talked about it in the class a little bit, and we've tried to, I don't know, maybe undercut this idea or problematize it. But, I mean, you both teach Old Testament. I mean, you must hear this kind of characterization. I mean, what do you think of it? Do you, do you think it's fair? Do you understand why people come to that conclusion? I certainly understand why the question comes up, especially as someone who's teaching class on the book of Judges and who has taught some things on uh, what we kind of call the Deuteronomistic history, which includes texts like Joshua and the conquest of Israel and some difficult passages. But I think this question leads into a bigger question, which is whether God is just mean in the Old Testament and the New Testament, right? Because <laughs> I think if you're gonna say that about the Old Testament, we have to at least grapple with some parts of the New Testament that are gonna make us pretty uncomfortable too. Let me just give you an example. Acts chapter five, we have the figures of Ananias and Sapphira, and in the story, they lie to the church about some property that they sell, and they're struck down dead, more or less immediately. Can you imagine if people were struck down dead for lying in church today? Can you imagine? I mean, let's just think about that for a minute. And why <laughs> just them? Maybe and they I, are. Maybe people are being struck dead all over the place. I don't, you know, may, I don't. Maybe. I don't know. But, but I think if we're asking whether God is nice in the New Testament and mean in the Old Testament, we at least need to have a more honest evaluation mm -hmm. of what's happening in the New Testament. Secondly, I want to at least mention the fact that in the Old Testament, we don't really have some kind of place where people go to eternal punishment of damnation, right? We don't really have hell in the Old Testament, but we have it in the New Testament. So if we have hell in the New Testament, <laughs> but not in the Old Testament, doesn't that make God seem meaner in the New Testament for sending people to hell? I mean, this is just really sort of a, a kind of um, popularized way of thinking sure. about it. But right, uh, do passages about hell make us kind of think twice about who God is? I mean, some of these passages in the New, in the New Testament, right, about the sheep and the goats, um, some of these passages make me tremble a little bit and wonder, you know, how nice totally. God is, right? Totally. Um, and then I, I think I also just want to say that when we're thinking about the Old Testament, let's just think for a moment about how the, the Old Testament starts. I mean, you're, let's just say you're opening it up for the first time. You've never read it before. What do you do? What do you see when you first open it? You get Genesis 1, right? Which mm -hmm. is this poem or hymn to creation with this resounding goodness to it, where God repeats seven different times and it was good. And not only does God repeat multiple times that God is looking at the creation and feels a sense of joy or pleasure or calling it good, but when God calls, uh, when God creates people, the text is emphatic that God says, and it was very good. 
So I think if you're if you're not reading that passage as you're thinking through the Old Testament, you've missed something deep and profound about mm. the way that God looks at us with a sense of joy, with a sense of um, of, of pleasure, with delight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what would you tack on anything to add to that? Yeah, one thing that I think is funny is that like the people of Israel and the text, the literature, doesn't actually find it to be a deal breaker that God does the things that he does. Hmm. Um, and any period of judgment or punishment or violence is always temporary too. So maybe this is speaking again to the like permanent nature of the covenant over any periods in which like maybe God is violent, um, just as the world therein is violent and other peoples are violent and other gods that other people peoples have are also violent. He's kind of consistent with that picture. Right. So I don't know that it feels any tension um, with that idea of God, actually. Right. I mean, you know, maybe yeah, maybe we're right to kind of push this problem and say, look, if you think God's mean in the Old Testament, like God, the biblical God is just mean, like, and you've got to take this in a more holistic way, you know. Um, the book of Revelation, too, by the way, is not exactly a peaceful book for everybody. Exactly. Um, there's some things that happen there, but... But yeah, I like this emphasis on covenant as an idea that you can keep moving with that as like a like a kind of theological touchstone that keeps moving um, forward. I wonder, just on a personal note, I mean, you both are, are scholars of the Hebrew Bible. You write, you teach, you know, you think. Have, have you dealt with feelings of just like, I don't know, confusion and, or anger or disorientation as you've studied the Bible? Uh, and if so, like... How do you deal with that kind of thing as a scholar? Like, does it is it just because you have a PhD in, in the field, it's just like you can just deal with it through the world of pure thought or something like that? Or is there some is there some other way? Are you, are you just in the muck like the rest of us? Maybe I'll answer that question first. I mean, I I think as scholars, we've been dealing with these uh, with these problems or issues or feelings of discomfort for longer than students have. And so we maybe come to our own place of comfort or our own sense of of the way in which we personally answer these questions. So uh, for us, maybe we don't have the same kind of um, fresh or raw feelings about them that students encounter. But I can very, uh, I can very clearly recall as a seminary student, especially questions that had to do with the authority of scripture, of finding out that the New Testament wasn't even canonized until the third or the fourth century. So how do we even know? what's? How did these texts get decided that they were Bible and which texts were not Bible? I can remember definitely feelings of, of, of wondering who God is and having to work through that. And I didn't I didn't find immediate answers to all of my questions, but I think the thing that that helped me the most was to continue on in the project of faith. And sometimes exercising your faith means just taking one step after another step after another step, and you just keep walking until the point where you feel more of a sense of of being in God's presence as something that is comforting again or something. Um, so there is a sense in which you kind of have to just exercise your faith as you currently understand it and wait for some of the answers to settle a bit more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. What, what about you, Jessica? I mean, I would echo a lot of what Dr. Ramos just said, and I think I definitely have adjusted to being in the muck, I suppose, and dealing mm-hmm. with the ambiguities. Um, but I think something that I take comfort in, in the Old Testament in particular, is how the Psalms illustrate in the communal and individual laments that you can call God out um, if you're feeling discomfort with anything in the world and even in your beliefs around him and be like, God, like, come bring this to rights. Like, I'm calling on you to bring justice to my mind and to the world, bring peace. 
um, to bring wholeness into the world. So I like the idea that even the Bible itself models how to cry out to God and even call him out on things. It's so weird how so many faith traditions seem to oddly just like have this lacuna, this lack at the lament tradition and the wisdom tradition in particular. Like, and these are the two traditions in the Bible that I think are can be, you know, for a lot of us, the most helpful when it comes to feeling, you know, frustration because they express this just directly. So it's like you don't have to run from the Bible. You can just run back into it. Like the tradition has so much um, and it's already covered in a way. I mean, do you think that's fair to say that the Bible, you know, if you're feeling angry, if you're feeling like an atheist even, like you can actually run back into the tradition because you have Ecclesiastes, you know, or something like that. I definitely think that the tradition supports that. And I like also that the tradition preserves multiple voices and multiple senses of, of coming to God with various kinds of emotional reactions and responses. I also find um, that asking intellectual questions of the Bible and, and, and being honest about the questions, something very refreshing. I know that when I was a high school student and I was kind of in and out of youth group, I was asking a lot of questions and there was a point in which I felt a sense of disappointment that maybe there weren't any answers. Mm. And, and so for me, it was quite refreshing to, um, to take courses and um, to, when I was in seminary and in other kinds of, uh, of settings, to be able to, um, to ask all the hard questions and feel like, God welcomes the hard questions, that nothing is off the table, that no, no responses, no questions, no doubts, no sense of anger or discomfort. Nothing is off the table when, when you go and, and, and you spend time with God in your prayer life. And there's a sense in which God wants us to bring those things. And that's my sense of it, that God says, you know, whatever you got, just bring it, bring it and, and, we'll, and we'll deal with it. Mm. Yeah, yeah I, like, I agree. Yeah, I like that. I think it's a good note to end on here. I'm so appreciative, Dr. Cleath, Dr. Ramos. Thank you so much for coming in here in my office and having this conversation and helping us provide this this closure for a kind of miniature, different kind of panel for this week, Descended to the Dead. Thanks so much. I give you a round of applause. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. Thank fun. you. <laughs>